0: Well, if you have a Bible, I hope that you'll open it to the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 6, and we'll go all the way through the middle part of chapter 9. So for the next maybe three and a half hours, we'll be plugging in this together. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, all right, so hands down, this is one of the most popular narratives or epics in the Bible. Everyone has heard about Noah and the flood. Even other religions have some kind of reasoning behind it. Even even non-religious mythology or scientific views of the world encounter what is known as the flood in one way or another. Now, long ago, there was a flood. It was devastating, and it served as a restart for humanity. Beyond that, people differ concerning the flood. Now, I'm personally not a guy who loves house projects. I'll, I'll do them either out of shame or necessity, uh, whether it's painting or fixing. Uh, and when I do, uh, just to make the time pass, I, I love listening to uh, documentaries or have documentaries playing on the side or maybe on a laptop that I can, I can distract myself with. Uh, I love documentaries. A good documentary will not just recount something. You might think about what history does. A, a good documentary doesn't just recount something, but it, it leads slowly to emphasize a way forward by looking at the past. So it's aiming to understand what happened in the past in order to shape maybe your pursuit in the way forward. It's, it's like solving a, a mystery, but then projecting the heart forward. So whether that's, why did World War II happen? Well, we want to know that so that World War III won't. Or why was Oklahoma State placed in Stillwater instead of its original plan in Hennessy? And how does that shape the rest of Oklahoma history? So it, it solves a, an issue, but then leads a heart forward differently. Our massive section of Scripture recounts something that appears and is very overwhelming, where the entire earth was covered by water, by a flood, and, and everyone and everything was, was wiped out, where the Scriptures say was blotted out, except, except one family and a bunch of animals. And God did it on purpose. And Moses, Moses, the author of this text, recounts it for us, and, and not just so that you and I will know maybe how the Grand Canyon was shaped, uh, but so that we'd live differently because of this flood and this doom that placed itself on creation. Moses gives you amazingly three chapters, and I don't know how you uh, might encounter these chapters, but, but Moses actually wrote these chapters in order to encourage those who would follow God. He's reminding them. So he's writing to an audience years later about something that happened years in the past, and in this case, he's writing to them in order to encourage them. Maybe the flood is scary, or maybe the flood is mystifying. Maybe you encounter the flood, these couple of chapters, with a great sense of doubt. No way it happened like that. How could Noah build a boat without power tools? But Moses, however you want to look at it, know that Moses is encouraging his people With even though God judges wickedness, He will save a group of people to encourage His kingdom here on earth. Even though He will judge wickedness, He is saving a group of people to continue His light, His expansive kingdom, even here on earth. Now, I imagine how encouraging it would have been to hear this. In the misery of life, these Israelites would have encountered Moses' teaching. In the misery of their own lives in the awfulness of rebellion and ungodliness, it would be God who they would hear from these scriptures. It would be God who would judge evil, and he will rescue his people. That's the, that's the way we encounter this text. Now, last week's sermon ended with the charge to the believer to, to continue, to press forward, to press toward righteousness because you can trust In God's very grip on your life. You can trust in God's guidance. You can trust in his ability to save you. Moses was saying, if he could do that, then realize what he can do in your own case. And today's sermon comes from this very vast picture or portrayal that was leading up from the previous text. This grand demonstration of how you can trust in God in such a way that even your soul can be saved. In the same way that Noah was preserved, you too can be saved. By God's good hands. Now, friend, I know that some of you are encountering this text with a personality that is regularly beat down. Your past haunts you, your current state depresses you, and and you fear, even if for a moment you fear if you contemplate hard enough, you fear at the end it'll all be for naught. Or worse yet, the end will be just as bad as today. But look at the ark that is filled with God's preservation. Look at the water that'll engulf all of sin and wickedness and then look at the deliverance that God provides you. That'll serve as my sermons flow and outline. Look at the ark, look at the water, look at the deliverance. If you have an outline on the back of the bulletin that's been provided to you, hopefully at one of the doors, you recognize there's not a printed outline. You can imagine my Saturday leading up to that. How do we cram three chapters in an understandable way. We want to see the natural flow of the text leading to the flow of our hearing it. And so I want you to look at the ark first, where Moses immediately provides a rare, significant character description. Uh, unlike many other people in the scriptures, it says that Noah was a righteous man. Right off the bat, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And these words characterize Noah in ascending order. He was, he was righteous, he was blameless and he was walking with integrity of heart. He walked with God as only Enoch did in chapter 5 before. This description of Noah truly stands initially as a, as a giant contrast to everything that went before it. Everything else was wicked, yet God found favor in Noah. In the, in the midst of, in verse 11, violence, lawlessness, godlessness, Noah was a righteous man in an evil world. And then in verse 12, God saw that the earth was corrupt. Like like last week, think of this. In the beginning, God created and saw everything that he made. He looked out, he saw his handiwork, and he saw that it was good. But now he looks out and he sees corruption, lawlessness, godlessness. The world was filled, not by his good doing, but now he sees it filled with awfulness. And so we hear, And so here we look at the ark where the narrative conflict builds and begins with God calling out to Noah. Look at verse 13 of the text where it says, "And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy everything the heavenly judge has seen the evidence of evil and pronounces a death sentence. But, but judgment here, we'll see, bit by bit, will come with exceptional grace. God's judgment is filled every time it's applied with redemption and grace, where he intends to save Noah. He intends to save Noah's family. He intends to save animals. But then look at what he says in verse 14 of the text. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and Cover it inside and out with the pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth is 50 cubits. Its height is 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. What a good plan. God tells Noah, to gather his family. God tells Noah to gather things. God tells Noah to build an ark because the, a flood is coming, and Noah obeys God's command without question. The narrator, Moses, repeats a regular phrase that, knows that Moses, that Noah, God, all these old people, I get mixed up. <laughs> Noah did all that God commanded him. It shows Noah walking with God in this way. Now when God originally instructed Noah to build an ark and said a flood was coming. If I told you, build something very quickly, a flood is coming, and a flood didn't come for a week, would you start to question me? If a flood didn't come for a month, what about if it didn't come for a year? In this case, it didn't come for a century. Yet Moses was still obedient to God, how patient he was in the midst of God's patience. And this ark was huge. We see that in the text. Maybe you've seen life-size renderings of this ark. It was incredible in size, especially for its setting. Shaved like a big, shallow box with a roof, a coffin, if you will. And And it took a century to build. But God tells Noah to build the ark because, in verse 17, he's going to flood the earth and destroy everything that breathes. And this flood is no accident. It wasn't an act of chaos, it wasn't a mistake, it was a deliberate act of God to destroy evil and all that evil infects. Now other religions, whether really old ones or even things today, other religions actually encounter this flood by saying that whatever gods were there, so God of sky, God of water, God of the sun, all these gods reacted in fear. Of this flood happening. Their their ancient accounts, their thousands of years old accounts actually have their gods reacting in fear, whereas our text says that our God did this with a very purpose. And God says to Noah, I'll establish my covenant with you at the end of this. And this is the first of some 299 times, or 290 times in the Old Testament where this word covenant is placed, where the old Adam covenant would be established with Noah and then all that the Lord had entrusted to and required of Adam would transfer then to Noah and all of his descendants. So God is doing this for a very important purpose. God is preserving for himself a people that he desires even at the cost of breaking down and dismantling evil. Look at verse 18 of chapter 6. There's a list of who belongs in the ark. and I want you to note the slow pace that characterizes Moses' emphasis In importance. He starts to slow things down. You you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. Of the birds according to their kind, of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every kind shall come into you to keep them alive. You see that in verses 18 through 20. And it's clear what the purpose of the ark is. The ark serves as a rescue pod, keeping alive humans and animals. And if and when the ark survives, everything will be new. So look at the ark. In the next scene in chapter 7, conflict intensifies as the ark is built. God orders Noah and his family and all the animals into the ark and tells them in verse 4 of chapter 7, in seven days I will send rain on the earth For 40 days and 40 nights, for a full period of time, the the corrupted earth will be subjected to God's judgment. God's judgment will be severe and complete. Now you got to think again that the patience and possibly the fear or the oh the anxiety of what would happen within Moses' own heart. He builds an ark for a century, and all of his friends must have looked on and laughed at him. And then he's told to go into the ark and wait for seven days. I think sometimes, anytime a snowstorm happens to maybe you and I, we think, oh, this is so good. I get to stay inside and hot chocolate and it's so great. But then what happens like 24 hours later? You get cabin fever, right? Well, imagine being in an ark with a bunch of giraffes who are just meandering around and you got to wait there for seven days and you hope that this thing will actually come true. It's here in the text that Moses slows his documentary pace and lists again, just so we know all the creatures that enter the ark to escape God's judgment. To escape, it says, the waters of the flood. And then it happens. Look at verse 11 of chapter 7, verse 11 through 13, where it says in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open, and rain." Fell upon the earth for forty days and forty nights, and on the very same day, Noah and his sons, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was breath of life, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. You can tell the the advancement of the pace that Moses wants us to hear and feel from this. In the beginning, we saw that God separated the waters from below, from the waters above, what appears to us like like a giant dome, and set boundaries for waters so that dry land could appear. We see that there's water in the sky and there's water on the earth, and we see that they interact with each other in different ways and are protect or protected by you know, whatever that is, the atmosphere, the stratosphere, one of the spheres up there. And then he brings it crashing down. God withdraws his sustaining hand. He reverses his act of creation and chaos returns where it once was. It returns to the earth as in the beginning, but there's, there's a glimmer of hope that this is not the end of God's kingdom on earth. There is an ark with all these creatures inside. And naturally in the text, you wonder, will they survive? Now, in the Christian life, we know what the end is. They will survive. But keep yourself within the tension of the text. The rain starts crashing down. In contrast to the Babylonian flood story, Gilgamesh, where, two, where the heroes were told to batten the door where they're told that the gods became frightened of the deluge that will encounter them. In the Genesis account, it is, notice there in the text, it is the Lord who shut them in. The Lord caused them to build. The Lord comforted them as they went. The Lord commanded them where to go, and then the Lord shuts the door, protecting them from the chaos on the outside. It's the Genesis account that shows what God did. The the amazing thing about... um, Noah and the Flood, the narrative of chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, is, is we often think of this story being about Noah, or even the obedience of his family, or even the people who would have made fun of him, or the hauntedness that he would have felt, or we want to spend a lot of time, what did that book boat look like? What were the waters like when they came up? What happened when salt mixed with you know, non-salt water? But really, the, the main character here is the Lord and his work of aiming to blot out wickedness and preserve those whom he chooses. It's the Lord who's sovereign over the waters. It's the Lord who is sovereign over the ark. It is the Lord who caused it to rain for 40 days and 40 nights and then stopped the water from coming down from the sky. So friends, look at the ark. But then secondly, look at the flood. Look at the flood. Last week it rained, right? Finally, <laughs> rained a good amount. And you might have waited up at or laid up at night waiting for the for the subtle tapping of rain that would have come and for those of you who depend on the rain for your livelihood that would have been a sound of joy finally rain is here i don't know if you've ever slept in a in a room that has like a metal a metal roof there's some kind of romanticism about the the pattering of rain as it falls down on something but keep in mind that this joyful noise, maybe to us, would have been something very unfamiliar to this original audience. They wouldn't have felt a storm like this before. Lightning and crashing of thunder was something that was unheard of or unseen in the world at that time. They would have gone into a boat, not have experienced a flood like this at all, maybe, maybe not even gone around in a boat altogether. How many people had boats back in the day? I don't know. But they would have heard this pattering on top of their roof where then it says that the water started to rise. We see here the climax of the story in verses 17 of 24 in the passage where Moses slows his pace yet again. He speeds up, he slows down, he lists things, and he slows down, describing first that the waters increased and bore up the ark. Though bobbing in the dangerous flood like a cork in the ocean, the ark rose above God's judgment. It's amazing if we look at How the ark is portrayed, something that is pieced together by the Lord's handiwork, and then how, then how God acts towards the ark as flooding comes in and judges wickedness. What, what did the ark do? It wasn't flooded itself, but it, it was lifted up and preserved. Forty days and forty nights. The waters were swelling, reaching higher and higher until the highest mountains are covered. It's, it's, it's a picture of floods raging over vast continents, unleashing total destruction. Any of you that have ever had flooding in your own house, it is amazing what a flood can do. Just a, just a you know, centimeter in height of water can ruin an entire foundation. When I lived in Charlottesville for a couple of years, my, my basement apartment, <laughs> I speak of it romantically, but it was a tragic place. My basement apartment flooded four times, and there were just so many things that were ruined, and the, and the flood didn't even happen that quickly. The language here is evocative, uh, a famous, like I've said before, a famous, older uh, narrative, Gilgamesh epic, a different mythology, uh, references this flood, describing the flood as gathering speed even as it blew, submerging mountains, overtaking the people like a battle. I keep bringing up these other accounts, not to compare them or put them on the same category as our account, our scriptural account, but just to say everyone knew that this happened. It ruined everything in everyone's eyes. The language is evocative. It was speaking of a violent churning whirling turbulence, the the repetitions of these brief verses in our scriptures, waters five times, increase twice, rose three times, the word greatly is used three other times, and it portrays a wild water ride where the earlier description of fountains of the great deep were bursting forth and the windows of the heavens, opening, describe a great ripping apart of the seas with torrential rain. It had to be, if you think about the flood, one of the scariest things man can ever encounter. Moses wants you to recall the, the comparison here in chapter 7 with chapter 1 of our scriptural account. When the waters above and below were separated, now they're brought together in a massive act of decreation, unleashing chaos, to the point where, in verse 23, all flesh died. Every living thing, the the one who gave the world creatures their breath of life has seen fit to now take it away. He blotted out everything that was on the face of the ground. The picture is one of total, unobjectionable death. Now, as an aside, when you, when you think of things like the ark and the flood and Noah, one of the things that I hope... You take away from this, and I do think it's an intention of Moses writing the way he does. I hope that this gives you a picture of how much God hates sin, how much God hates your sin and your life, how God intends to judge wickedness and sin because of its awfulness. He goes to great lengths to blot it out, which should heighten our view of sin. In Genesis, you'll see God's judgment of human sin here. You'll see it later in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. You'll see God completely destroying an area, Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. You'll see God's judgment later on on Israel, where a whole generation dies in the desert and doesn't go into the promised land because of sin. And then later on, you'll see God's judgment in the deportation of his people to Assyria, historically in 722 B.C., and of Judah, his, historically to Babylon in 587 B.C. No doubt there were people who felt that they had no warning or shake angry fists and are hateful towards the heavens as it poured out. But the judgment was not one of a divine whim. Peter reveals that God had great patience when he waited, on the days of noah while the ark was being prepared noah had been warning mankind for over a century so i think if you're here and you're not a christian you see us talking about this long ago story of a flood that encountered the earth and and i think i want you to see that as actually happening it did actually happen it's not for you to understand if it happened or not it did happen deal with it but what i want you to take away from that is the seriousness of god's righteousness in comparison to man's own wickedness. Now, your natural response, non-Christian, is to assume that God will be patient with you. You'll have time to clean yourself up. If given an option later on, you'll respond in the way that maybe others are. You, you just want to enjoy this moment for now. All of us, when we pursue sin, we think that that moment will be satisfying us for much longer than it always does. But how patient do you expect God to be with you? With these people, he was patient for a century as they saw the boat being built. You won't live that long. It may be tomorrow. It may be next week. It may be another month. But the call of this text is for you to obey God like Noah did, to find refuge in the ark. Now, one of the amazing things about the Scripture, uh, I, <laughs> man, the Bible is so cool. There, there are things in the Scriptures that are called signs of what will ultimately un- unfold in the person of Christ. So there are glimmers of Christ in the Old Testament or, or types of Christ in the Old Testament. We see that the flood is like a great picture of the wrath that is being poured out on the person of Christ. But I wonder if you think about the flood and its destruction and as a type of Uh, as a type of judgment poured out on God's people. I wonder if you also think about the ark as a type of Christ. How you are to approach Christ, both Christian and non-Christian, how you're to approach Christ is the very same way that Noah would approach the ark. It was something that he recognized as the only thing that would save him. It was something that he obediently followed God's voice into. It was something that was sealed behind him, and it was something that would carry him into a great deliverance. We see that in the very person of Christ, where a Christian believes in Jesus to save us from our sins, which are wicked, but also from the very wrath of God, which we deserve. And God calls us to actually believe in Christ in the same way that Noah would go into the ark. Finally, recounting all the things that we see judgment in, whether it's on the Tower of Babel, or on Sodom and Gomorrah, or on being deported into Assyria or Babylon, finally we see God's judgment of sin at play on the place of Calvary, where Jesus would die for and because of sin. All these judgments of God in the Old Testament point us to God's own sudden final judgment On the person of Christ, like in Noah's day. And it would be Jesus who would promise the world wherever he preached that there would be a time where he will come again, and the judgment that was placed on him for the forgiveness of his people's sins, that same judgment will be poured out on all of the earth again. So today, through the cross, Jesus has provided an ark of salvation from coming judgment. He has warned explicitly of this coming judgment, and so have his apostles and prophets. We see him talking about this in Matthew 24. We see Peter talking about this in 2 Peter 3. So there's, there's no excuse for us to see anything other than God's judgment and righteousness at play here. We can trust in one or we can hope to survive the other. And what he is clear on is that the entire world couldn't survive his judgment unless they entrusted him themselves to his ark. So the call for us is to see the ark as Christ and trust in him. In our narrative's case, God blotted out every living thing. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark. And those waters swelled on the earth for 150 days. The narrator quickly moves to a resolution. We see that in the very first verse of chapter 8, where it says, but God remembered Noah. And that's the major turn in this narrative. He warns them. He describes what will happen. He carries out that judgment on the world. He preserves Noah in the midst of 40 days and 40 nights of rain. In the midst of 150 days of letting the water settle, he remembered Noah. Now, this isn't to say that he forgot Noah, looked out and goes, oh, a boat. That's not what it means when it says he remembered Noah, but rather he honors his own word, As he was doing all those things, as he was orchestrating and ordaining all that would come to pass, he had in his mind a love for Noah. He saved Noah. God remembered not only Noah, but all in the ark. And so he caused the waters to recede. Here we see in this verse. Now, by drawing parallels, this story, Moses is brilliant in his action on this. He draws parallels to the creation story in Genesis 1, where Moses tells the receivers of this text. So, think about this understanding this text, maybe for the first time, he tells the receivers of this text that God is causing a new beginning. In the way that he formed a beginning, in this case, he is allowing the waters to recede and is causing a new beginning. Like in Genesis 1, God harnesses the damaging waters by, in our case, verse 2, closing the fountains of the deep in the windows of the heavens. Slowly the waters shrink away, shrink away and a purified creation rises from the chaos. So friends, look at, the, look at the flood, mostly because it was awful, mostly because it was awful because of man's sin. But finally in our, in our passage, I want you to not only see the ark and see the flood, I want you to see the deliverance that is showcased here. In chapter 8 verse 13, it goes on this long-awaited recounting where it says in the 600, 600 first year, in the first month, uh, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth. Then God told Noah to leave the ark and take everything out of, to become a new Adam. So He instructs Noah not to stay in the ark forever, but to leave the ark in order to become a new Adam, to restart humanity in a renewed creation. Here, it's where God would make a new beginning, and amazingly, He is doing this. And exactly how he promised in Genesis chapter 3.15, where this perfect line of the seed of the woman will now restart humanity, calling him to be fruitful and multiply once again. It's here where God tells Noah that he can enjoy all of the new earth, even to the point of eating meat like never before. It's here where God instructs Noah to respect the living creatures that he has dominion over, paving the way for humans to understand the cost of blood and the the gift of blood. Something's happening there that man is supposed to enjoy, but in a particular way. And enjoy it according to God's instruction and almost like saying, you'll see why later. And it's here where God tells Noah the value of life, instructing them the consequences of taking another man's life. You have a a heightened view of God's general gift in the world, but also a heightened view once again of humanity, as if we needed a reminder that these image bearers are to be protected by us. But more so And a lot of the things that we could say about what is seen here, it's here where God sees Noah building an altar to the Lord and offering burnt offerings, it's here where God would give Noah a covenant. And this covenant is called the Noahic Covenant. It's called the Noahic Covenant because it's about Noah, right? So the Abrahamic Covenant, if you're ever in Bible trivia, it's about the time of Abraham, right? The Adam Covenant during the time of Adam, that kind of thing. So Noah, God gives Noah this covenant, this, this one of several covenants that would come to God's people and it informs the ones that follow. So the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenants, they all fall from the teaching of this where they're built off of each other like scaffolding on a great coliseum. But look at the text where it says in chapter, chapter uh, 8, verse 8. Nope, chapter 9, verse 8. Sorry, we're flying through, aren't we? Chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his two sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock, every beast of the earth which with you, as many came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God gives this general sense of grace of protecting the earth. From his wrath, that it'll never happen again like this. This grand covenant that is given to Noah and all those who would hear is universal. It's unilateral. It's unconditional. It's its universality is evident because it encompasses not only every human being, but every living creature on the planet. It's unilateral, and that God alone is a sole initiator. He he twice calls it my covenant. Verses eight and eleven. It does not require any action from mankind, not even an acknowledgment. It's just a, it's just a gift. Theologically, it's called common grace. It's unconditional because there will never be another cosmic destruction by water, no matter what we earthlings do. And strangely, but appropriately, this sign, the sign of this covenant, is a bow. Uh, this might be a, a little kid project, maybe this morning. I'm not really sure. But how many of you went to Sunday school or VBS and you drew a giant rainbow and you argued over how many colors are in it? Is there eight? How many is in Roy G. I'm not really sure, but you drew this where God gave this common sign. Here, we get all of that language from this text where it says that God would show this covenant regularly by a bow. Now, this is amazing because normally understood in Israel, a bow would be a weapon of war. You draw back a bow in order to impede danger on someone else. But God hangs his bow of war in the heavens, amazingly as a sign of peace between him and man, between him and his creation. Just as God remembered Noah in chapter eight, verse one, this narrative promises twice to remember his covenant by never sending a flood to destroy all flesh. Like creation, the flood ends with God declaring peace and rest, where people can have full assurance of God's faithfulness. And I wonder if you do that when you look at a rainbow. Maybe you're one of the lucky ones who see a double rainbow, you know, and you film it and you pass it around all kinds of people. We've all seen one, right? Or we've made one up. But when you look at that, is that just a science project for you or is it a faithful reminder of God's grace given to his people? But I want to hone in in closing by showing you that something bigger is at play in this text. There's a a lot of general teaching and application that we can take away from God instructing Noah to build an ark, God sending a flood to destroy wickedness, God even preserving and delivering uh, Noah and his family from this. But there is something bigger at play, and we've seen this for thousands of years. Noah, just like the ark is a type of Christ, Noah also is a type of Christ. Noah is a new Adam. Maybe you've heard of Jesus being the true and better Adam. Noah is a new and truer Adam, representing humans, where the seed of the woman continues on to fight war against the seed of the man, a person who obeyed God without question, a person through whom God made a new start in this world. And so if you're reading this narrative, the, the Christmas blinking lights might start coming on. And you go, is this it? Is this the Savior who would come? We thought it was Adam. That didn't work out. We thought it Might be Cain or Abel, that didn't work out. Maybe it was Seth. A lot of people died after Seth. But here, we have someone being portrayed to us by Moses as someone who would deliver his people. We'll later on see that Noah did not perform in this way to fully deliver people from their sins, even though he would be used in such a way to do so. But we recognize that in the text, in the scripture, in its fullness, that it would be Jesus who would come and be what Noah was intended to be. It was even in a greater way, Jesus is shown to be not only a son of the woman or a seed of the woman, but he was sent as God's very son, his only begotten son. And it's through Jesus, God would make a completely new start with his people, where Jesus offers his life to atone for human sin once and for all. Noah had a boat, but Jesus would give everything in order to save his people. Paul states that he does this, that Jesus does this for our sake. That God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. There was nothing sinful about Jesus at all, but God made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. With his resurrection, Jesus would bring in God's kingdom with new life for all of his followers and the hope of a new creation that is free from the bondage to decay. You think of what happens in a Christian life when they are delivered from the domain of darkness to new life. We can look at this text and go, wow, what what a glimmer of hope from the very beginning that God is giving us in his word that in the same way that Noah and his family was delivered from the wickedness of the world, we will be delivered into a new life. But it wasn't done through a boat. It was done by Jesus' own life and by his own resurrection. This good news for us is not only hope for the future, it is also an encouragement for the present. Peter would use, in present terms, Peter would use the flood narrative to offer his persecuted readers, those who were in danger, their life was in danger, their life was being persecuted. He would use this case, this circumstance, by saying, if God did not spare the ancient world even though he saved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial. He's the God of new beginnings. He made a new beginning with Noah and all the creatures of the ark. He made a new beginning with Israel when he brought a remnant back from the exile. He made a new beginning To us, in the person of Christ, and we as the church, in response to this, the body of Christ, are a part of this new beginning. Even during persecution and trials, even during weariness and wandering, God's new beginning gives us hope and courage to carry on. For as Peter puts it, in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where the righteousness is finally at home. So friends, we can live in hope. We can see this documentary not as something that goes, wow, that was cool, but we recognize that this is catapulting us forward, that as we pursue God in righteousness, that as we walk with him, we can have the same hope of being delivered forever. It is in Christ where we can count on God's new beginning, both now and when Jesus comes again to restore his perfect kingdom here on earth. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that we can encounter your word for your instruction, as it is dear to us in our lives. We pray that as we pursue you, we would be reminded of your care for Noah, of your preservation of the Ark, of your judgment over wickedness to the point where we worship and relish in the reigning life of Christ. God, we pray that you would lift us up to understand you more deeply to enjoy you more thoroughly, and to bask in your good grace. We pray this in your Son's holy name. Amen.